This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. And welcome. It's another sign of the return to normal, at least a new normal. And the travel industry is counting on it for a desperately needed boost in sales. As of April 1st, as you heard in Bob's news, we will not need a negative test to get back into the country. And in case you missed it, all morning, I've been venting about how hard and expensive it was to find a rapid antigen test when I was in Palm Springs just last weekend. So this move will certainly make travel a bit less stressful and cumbersome and expensive. So is it going to make a difference to you in your calculations about whether you want to take a trip, what kind of trip you want to take, uh, all of those things? The numbers 416-360-0740, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And this is something border mayors, among many others, have been advocating for. Let us go now to Niagara Falls Mayor Jim Diodati. Hello, Mayor. How are you? I'm, I'm well. It'll be much better today than I was a couple days ago. Okay, well, tell me what you are hoping for. Uh, first of all, the effect of the test uh, on on travel or back and forth in Niagara Falls, because uh, I know that a lot of people would have just wanted to make short trips, uh, which don't make a lot of sense with testing. You're exactly right. It'll mostly impact the day trippers. And we've got four international bridges between Niagara and the USA, and they've been dead. You can shoot a cannon down them. There's been no travel. Uh, there's been a lot of confusion, a lot of frustration, a lot of many things with the labyrinth of rules. It's about time. It's overdue that we remove this. We've always said follow the science, and the scientists have been saying for quite a while, travel is no more risky than any other activity, and this was not a good thing to have. I was speaking with the mayor of Niagara Falls, New York. Uh, we're grateful that April 1st will not be an April Fool's joke, that they're actually going to stop the census testing. In Niagara Falls, we're the number one leisure destination in Canada. We get 14 million people every year, and typically 50% of the revenue comes from our U.S. visitors. So it's our hope that people resume some of their travel activity and start to spend their travel dollars here in Niagara, in Ontario. So, uh, but what about the other end? So I gather that if they're driving, they don't need a test on the other end either. Exactly right. And, and they've never required it. They only ask you if you've been vaccinated when you drive into the U.S. Most of the time, they never ask for any kind of proof, but they never require any kind of test or negative outcome of a test when you get into the U.S. That's why they've been asking us for a long time. And I deal with a lot of U.S. mayors, uh, congressmen, senators, and they say, what is the problem? Why is there something you know we don't know? And I, I can never answer the question. And I can tell you, we've got a lot of snowbirds starting to come back. And they're, I know, very frustrated, a lot of consternation around what do we have to do to come back? And I'm glad that finally some common sense has come forward. Well, uh, it's interesting, though, because if you're flying to the United States, as I did last week, you do need a test, though uh, getting a, a rapid antigen test here is no biggie. But boy, I had such a hassle coming back. Most people, uh, you know, are going with the kits that you can do online. I didn't think to do that. I assumed it would be easy. And, you know, most of the pharmacies no longer do them. There was one place doing them that was gouging $129 US for a rapid antigen test. And it was really hard to find. You're exactly right. One of my daughters, uh, I was taking her to the airport in Buffalo in January, and my test was more expensive than her return flight. And I said, this is ridiculous, and you can't get them. They wouldn't recognize them being done at a pharmacy in Canada, but I could simply drive over the bridge, a five-minute drive, and go to any of the pharmacies there and get it, and that one's okay. So a lot of silly, senseless rules. 
I'm glad we need this thing to turn around. And, and we needed it to happen sooner than later, Libby, because right now in Niagara Falls, we're planning our marketing dollars. So we need to know, are we marketing Pennsylvania, Michigan, New York State, or are we going to keep our money here in Ontario? We needed to know sooner than later. So we're, we're hopeful after two devastating tourism seasons. And here in Niagara, got to understand, 40,000 people count on tourism to feed their families. We need this to work. We cannot have a third season that's lost. So fingers crossed, hopes are high. And right now I can say after Valentine's Family Day and now spring break, the city's been full hustle and bustle, a lot of happy families and smiling faces. Right. And in Niagara Falls, I... Uh, would imagine that it's not just the travel industry, it's it's everything. It is, because it's all integrated. And, and people need to understand there's linen companies that supply the linens to that industry that sell them their soap. There's the people that work to clean the rooms that sell, sell them their food. It's so integrated into the local economy that it has an impact on so many people. And the other thing, now we're dealing with, as they call it, the great resignation, or some call the great negotiation, where many people have left the industry. They've left hospitality. It's too unpredictable and risky. And now some of our hotels, our restaurants, they're struggling to find people. They can't even open up. Some restaurants are only open three days a week right now. They can't get the staff. Yeah, I know that's uh, it's it's the same basically everywhere. Though I started to hear interesting reports that uh, there's a great resignation remorse starting to happen. So uh, let's hope uh, about that. But yeah, and it also means that people working in the industry are demanding better pay and better working conditions. And you know, I support that, and and I know some people have been having are forced into a situation where they have to work two or three jobs just to make ends meet because they're in that industry. And I can tell you, tourism's been maturing quite a bit over the years, where at one time it was a part-time minimum wage job. Now there's careers and good career opportunities as the industry matures. It's a $100 billion-plus industry in Canada. It's significant around the world. And, and the other thing, the other aspect we need to talk about is being in a border community. We see Niagara Falls as one city split by a border. I was speaking with the mayor of Niagara Falls, New York, this morning, and, you know, I've got family, as many of us do on both sides of the border. Many of us have missed funerals and weddings and lots of important functions, and it's been disruptive on a lot of families. A lot of people have property on both sides of the border. So it was one thing during 9-11 and we've been through SARS and Mad Cow and H1N1 and all the other different things. But this one was a lot longer, a lot more severe, and it's going to take longer to recover. So we're, we're also grateful the Ford government has this accommodation incentive up to $2,000 for families to spend on accommodation that you'll get back on your income tax for next year. Yeah, that's right. It's the uh, staycation benefit. Uh, have you started to see people booking for that? Absolutely. I And it's funny, when I, I was down by the falls yesterday, and I like to go down and just mix and mingle and just play tourist and talk to people and talk to our operators and talk to our frontline staff. And, and they hear the buzz where people are saying, gosh, we're, we got up to 2000 bucks." And if they spend it on a hotel, the whole idea is take the two-hour traveler into an all-day traveler and take the all-day traveler into an overnight traveler. Because once they commit to a hotel or any kind of lodging and they stay longer, they spend more money. They go to the restaurants and the attractions, and we have more of a multiplier effect and more of a benefit to the local economy because, gosh, we need it. Okay. Mayor Jim Diodati, anything else you want to leave us with? Well, all I'll say to all your listeners is there's lots of good bargains out there because we're anxious to get everyone back in the city. So jump online, check out the deals, and come on down and visit us. We offer a buffet of fun and excitement. And if you want to win dad, mom, granddad, or grandmom of the year, bring the kids with you. Lots of fun things to do. Okay, will do. Thank you so much, Mayor Jim Diodati. Thanks, Libby. Appreciate the time. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, scrapping the need for a test on the way home will save a bit of money, but the unleashing of pent-up demand for travel and soaring energy costs are likely to push up the prices of flights vacation packages, and cruises. I can tell you firsthand, everything seemed way more expensive than I recall. 
though in my case, I was probably in my destination at the most expensive time of the year. However, the rush to beat rising prices is probably going to lead to a rush to get bookings done, which should be good news for the travel industry. So again, are you thinking about a trip? Have you been thinking about a trip? Maybe now is the time to put your money down. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And I am now joined by Martin Firestone, President of Travel Secure, and Carly Marshall, Travel Consultant with Glennie Travel in Fort Erie, Ontario. Welcome and thanks for being with us. Good afternoon. Hi. Hi. Well, Carly, let us begin with you. Have you started to see an uptick in bookings or a change in your customers' feelings? Absolutely. As soon as the government got rid of their non-essential travel advisory, it just opened the floodgates for demand. And like you said, the prices are just, you know, incredibly high, but people don't care. They've been cooped up for two years now. And now that the testing is gone, it's just one more barrier taken away, encouraging everyone to, to go. And uh, overall, I know it depends on the destination, but how much higher are prices now, Carly, would you say as a percentage? Well, they were bottom of the barrel prices before due to the low demand, um, but they've pretty much, you know, increased by 50% to 100% on average for going in the immediate future. Uh, But you can still get good deals. The name of the game is just going to be to book early. Um, If you're looking for next fall or even next winter, now is the time. Uh, Marty, what are you finding? Well, I want to say my exuberance, uh, different than the mayor's, about border crossing and all that is, do you realize now people who didn't go away because they were worried about testing positive and having to quarantine 10 days in the destination location now don't have that worry anymore. That's huge as far as I'm concerned from the announcement yesterday because now people will go away knowing they can come back on the day they're supposed to and be able to go back to work, school, whatever. So that was a huge change. On the Snowbird side of things, I promised them in November, I said by April, let's hope that testing requirement is gone and wouldn't you know it april 1st it's going to be gone so the majority of them i'm talking hundreds of thousands will be returning after april 1st now more than ever just to avoid any testing whatsoever Hmm. interesting uh carly what are people starting to book well a lot of people who were hesitant to book winter vacations you know caribbean florida that kind of thing now are trying to go and we are finding slight availability issues. Europe is booming. They re- they removed their testing requirements a couple weeks ago. And since then, everybody's been booking their summer vacations, a lot of Europe. Um, people are still doing cruises. You know, they've had their cruises delayed now for almost three seasons in a row. So they're doing a lot of that, too. It's basically, you know, a lot of people are doing their bucket list trips that they weren't able to do over the past three years, almost. I have to say I'm a little surprised about Europe because I would think that the war would kind of make people think twice about Europe, even if they're thinking about Western Europe. It's there, Yeah, it hasn't even entered the minds of the people thinking to travel to Western Europe. You know, they're a little bit, I shouldn't say it hasn't entered their minds, um, but they just, they're not worried about it enough to stop booking travel. There are still a lot of flexible policies in place from the airlines and the tour companies, which is good. Um, but people, yeah, they just want to go. They've they've done everything that they're supposed to do, and now it's time for freedom. Hmm. Let's hear from Lori in Ontario. Hi, Lori. Hi, Libby. How are you? I'm fine. So, Libby, um, we just returned uh, in February from a trip to the Bahamas. We booked it a year ago thinking that we were going to have no problems now. But, of course, that didn't happen. And, um, you know, we went through the whole um, Bahamas travel visa, the getting all the papers together, and it was a lot of tears were shed. And uh, um, But once we started traveling, it all went very smoothly going there and back. Hmm. Well, and, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was, you go ahead. <laughs> oh, 
Well, you know, um, we were always people that we cruised. We went on cruise ships and we decided we didn't want to do that anymore. Um, but I understand that um, the CDC listed so that it's a moderate travel risk now for, for cruising. But um, we went to a resort for the first time. And uh, we usually don't do that. We went to Isla de Brian. <laughs> and um, um, it's a Rulamar resort in the Bahamas. And um, we, we probably would not have gone had we been able to get our money back. But we weren't. So we took the risk. We went. And everything was great. Uh, are you ready to take another cruise? Um, you know, uh, no, I don't think so. Not yet. Um, I just, no, we're not ready to yet. We might one day, but, but not yet. Okay. Well, uh, that says it. Lori, thanks for sharing your experience. Okay. Thanks, Libby. Bye-bye. Let's go Bye. to Bill in Brampton. Hi, Bill. Hi, good morning. Yeah. So good afternoon. Regulation, so it's okay now. You can, no worries coming back to Canada, but you know, I'm, I'm, Going to Trinidad and Tobago to for my mother-in-law's 90th birthday, I'm still looking at RCPCR test that cost me anywhere between 100 and 120 dollars. So the two of us were talking, you know, over 200 dollars senior. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's a money grab. So you you need the PCR test to get into In Trinidad. Order to get into Trinidad, I need the RT-PCR test, which you can get. But it's going to cost you anywhere between a hundred and a hundred and twenty dollars a person. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it's outrageous. Right, but that we have nothing to do with that. That's Trinidad. Uh, it, it's Trinidad that requires the test. It's yeah. Canadian pharmacies that are giving the test, and I think a hundred dollars is ridiculous. Well, uh, I, I, it's expensive, but boy, it used to be more expensive, <laughs> and. Well, uh, uh, I, I still say it's it's outrageous, especially for a senior. Are you are you going to go anyway? Well, yeah, yeah. It's, you know, she's going to be ninety years old. It might be the last chance. Well, yeah, it's an important thing. What what's your reaction that you can now go? Well, the fact that we can go, obviously, I'm happy with that. I mean, been sitting at home for the last two years, you know, behaving myself. And that's another worry we have right now, since everything is coming off, no more mouth guards and everything else. So now I've got to basically isolate myself till I go for the test, because I want to make sure it's, it's negative. Yeah. Bill, uh, I hope you have a fabulous trip, and congratulations on that 90th birthday in your family. Thank you very much. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, numbers again, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. We are talking about the lifting of the test requirement to get back into Canada, but of course we have no control about what other countries are doing. And uh, I'm talking to Carly Marshall, who is a travel agent in Fort Erie and is sitting, seeing a nice uptick in bookings. And we're expecting uh, expense. It's, she says, gone up 50 to 100%. Ouch. Uh, Martin Firestone, what about the insurance aspect of all of this? Insurance has never been better. COVID is included. It's basically part of your contract. You don't need to pay extra for it. There's no cap on it. You can go away and enjoy. The only element still that's questionable is cancellation. If there's a wave, if there's a border closure, if you don't want to fly to that country because you're worried about the number count. So that still has hesitancy, but everything else is good. And trip interruption is not going to be necessary anymore because you're not going to test positive and need to quarantine for 10 days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember uh, the trip in, the trip interruption, and it, it was really a godsend for people anyway. It was, but guess what? April 1st, you're not going to need it because there is no test that's going to be administered that's going to make you positive. So that's really a bonus. Okay, and well, uh, there are still random PCR tests at the airport that they give you, and it, it was interesting. I was wondering if we were going to have one of those. At least you didn't have to quarantine till you got the results. I mean, I know that when I was booking the vacation from work 
And as soon as I got back, uh, our associate news director and uh, the guest host here, Jane Brown, uh, left. So I remember we're we're trying to book these holidays and they're saying, well, we've got to put in a day buffer in case we get one of those random tests and we have to quarantine while we're waiting for the result. And then that came off in the meantime, making life a lot easier. But, you know, it's it's... If you're working or going to school or everything, I mean, just the amount of things to juggle was, it was a lot. Let us go to Ron in Guelph. Hi, Ron. Hi, Libby. Thanks for taking my call. This will be quick. I just came back from Detroit yesterday afternoon, actually yesterday evening. And my son, fortunately, spent a lot of time, uh, and he did some research, and um, he's CBS and Walgreens and Rite Aids, and they wouldn't quote a price even online or on the phone because most of those kind of major chains only deal with insurance, whether it's government or private insurance. So it was like you said, you had to find somebody who would actually do it for cash or credit card, which is, fortunately, I got mine done for $75. Well, I'm jealous. (laughs) Because we paid more, but it was it was really complicated. You called the chains, and they said you have to see which particular locations are doing it. You know, we were walking around, and none of the locations were doing it. So there you go. But uh, it's just a memory now. Did you have well, a good time in Detroit? Well, no, I was um, I was frustrated. I was down there to pick up parts. I was supposed to. I got a vintage car. Long story short, so. Uh, there were some parts that were sent to somebody I know. I was supposed to go down there early December, and I waited until between Christmas and New Year's, and then our prime minister decided December the 23rd or 23rd, nope, you've got to have a negative test to come back into Canada. And I thought, oh, great. So um, now the other thing coming back, uh, the Americans going, this was a land border, of course, of Sarnia, Americans um, wanted to seize my vaccination certificate. Coming back into Canada, the guy only cared about one thing. Forget about the arrived can. If you got it, yes. All right. If you got your vaccination certificates on your phone, yes, they do. He wanted to see that physical piece of paper that said negative. Okay. Well, there you go. Ron, thanks for your call. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Oh, and now we have a call from Buffalo. We have Frangelo in Buffalo, New York. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Frangelo? Hello? Hmm. Okay. Uh, our technical... Hello? Hello? Are you there, Frangelo? Hi, how are you? Fine. Are you a first-time caller? I think your show is fantastic. Oh, thank Maybe you. I could try to help out a little bit. We have a place here at 3589 Broadway Avenue in Chittawaga, out by the airport. It's New York State Health Department. Anybody is entitled to get free testing, free COVID. And I've got the phone number. If you need the phone we, number. We, we don't need it anymore. We're doing a show saying that uh, that uh, the testing requirement is removed as of April the first. Now you're saying that you you come here to Toronto all the time, yeah? Yes, my brother lives up in Port Hope. Uh huh. And uh, are you going to come uh, more often or change anything now that restrictions are easing? Well, I called this morning and I talked to the Canadian Customs and the U.S. Customs. And neither one of them knew that much about April 1st. They said they only heard about it today. They had no information on it. So she said, don't count your chickens before and that, you know, the eggs are hatched because we don't really know too much about what's going on until we get official notice. April 1st is nothing but hearsay. Okay, well, it was announced. Let me, uh, sorry to interrupt you, but it was announced this morning. It's official. As of April the 1st, you will not need a negative test to get back into Canada as long as you're fully vaccinated. Now, um, do I take, I am, I can show on my phone, I have uh, my three shots. I have my two COVID shots and then I have my booster. 
And I also have my card and that. What will we have to show coming over the border? Is it just the booster card or will they accept it on our phone? Uh, when I asked them this morning, they told me that they didn't know. Okay. I, I Do either Carly or Martin know? I know that Canadians need to have it on the Arrive Can app. Do visitors from the States need to get it on the Arrive Can app as well? I believe the Arrive Can document is for all. So, I mean, maybe our other uh, listener can can answer that, but I'm pretty sure Americans coming in have to fill out documentation also. Okay, well, I think that's right, uh, Angelo. So th- there's an app called Arrive Can. You download it and you upload your vaccine uh, certificate onto the Arrive Can app. Now, can I ask you just one more question? Okay. On the Arrive Can app, I do have that on my phone. I did use it three times when I went up to see my brother. Is there a way of putting your documentation on there permanently so you don't have to keep on doing all that other than the date you are coming up or how long you're going to be? Is okay, that is, that is putting that on? I, that is beyond my IT, uh, my IT expertise. I, I think I can answer that. You have to do it every time. It, after it's used, it, it goes blank again. Absolutely. It does oh. stay on there? Nope. Okay, Angelo. So I have to do I've, it every time? Yep. That's what Marty said. Marty knows. Uh, I've got to go. Thanks a lot for your call. And uh, Thank you. Come up and spend lots of cash here. Right. Okay. Um, so that's good. A little increase on both sides of the border. Uh, we're basically out of time on this. Carly, what would you like to leave us with? Only thing is just that this has been a long time coming and it's great news and it is a sign that, you know, knock on wood, things are returning to normal. Um, travel since March of 2020 has not been how COVID is spreading according to, you know, the statistics from Canada and it's just great news. I feel very optimistic about everything. Good. And Martin Firestone, last 20 seconds to you. Just praying that we do not take any steps back here because we cannot risk having to try to put back some of these restrictions. Only hope it's one way from here and that's forward and up. Okay. Thank you so much, Carly Marshall and Martin Firestone. We'll talk again soon. Thanks. Thank you. Bye. Okay, we are going to take a break, and when we come back, we will talk to the executive director of one of the organizations at the forefront of bringing desperately needed medical supplies to Ukraine, and that is Rahul Singh from Global Medic, when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Next, we talk to an organization on the forefront of bringing desperately needed aid to Ukraine and Ukrainian refugees in other places. Global Medic has been providing medical supplies to be flown to the country. And as we've been hearing that medical supplies are running very, very short, and their donations also include a million water purification kits for cities where the water supply has been shut off by Russians. And now I am joined by Rahul Singh, who is the executive director of Global Medic. Rahul, thanks so much for being with us. Hey, thanks for having me on. So uh, what kind of things are you taking over and uh, are they all sourced here or do you get some of them on location? Yeah, so it's a bit of a complex answer, but let me let me try and break it down for you. So Global Medics run about 240 ops. We've worked in 80 countries. We've worked in Ukraine since 2014. We have teams inside Ukraine. So folks that have been with us since 14, they're Ukrainians. They care about their their country and their community, and they're providing like community kitchens and feeding centers to feed folks. They've also opened up warehouses to receive the cross-border humanitarian aid that we've shipped in, which includes the the 20 skids that we, and Air Canada was so kind to, you know, move an aircraft in for us. We put in 3.75 million of those water purification tablets. So we put in more than the million that you mentioned. Essential medicines, because just like you said, people, you know, if you fled the fighting, um, you grab the clothes on your back and you fled, you don't have your meds. And if you have high blood pressure or diabetes or a comorbid condition, you just don't have your meds. So we've got to get you those meds. 
because we don't want you to not have your meds, end up in hypertensive crisis, and end up in a hospital. And the reason is those hospitals are overwhelmed with the trauma patients they're dealing with from, you know, the, the, the war, right? Like from the bombardment, from the shrapnel, you know, those patients. And in order to help them, we put in trauma supplies. Now, outside the country, we've got that little hub depot in Poland where we receive aid and then cycle it in. We've got a team in Romania and a team in Moldova. The team in Moldova is feeding people, helping the shelters, helping refugees as they come out. We're up at the borders. We started producing these food packs, these, these hampers that we provide to refugee families that are staying in Moldova, incredibly poor folks, and to the host families that are hosting them because Moldova is the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, and uh, the families that are hosting refugees really need the support. If we can give them the food to cook, it's great. In Romania, we do the exact same thing that we're doing in Moldova, except we also run cross-border aid into Ukraine from one of those one of those uh, overland ports of entry as well. I know it's a little complex and fluid, but to answer your other question, most of the stuff we're buying there, the specialty stuff like the trauma supplies or the water purification supplies or the medications we're grabbing from here and air freighting into Europe and then over. Now, I would have expected that it would be difficult to get the uh, humanitarian supplies like the food and, and the basic things, but I'm told that it's not, that it's plentiful there. Is that right? So depending where you are in Ukraine, if you are in the middle of a besieged town like a Mariupol or a Kherson or a Kharkiv, it's very difficult. Like those towns are in a world of trouble. If you're in a non-combatant area where people are fleeing to, the supplies and the market are still open and we really should try and support the local economy and the local market, which is like in Lviv where we're running our community kitchen, I'm not bringing in food to give to folks. I hired a kitchen out in order to keep their jobs, in order to keep people working and put money into their economy. And they're producing comfort food, which we then give away. Um, So there is access there to food and those types of items. Now, medical supplies, that's a different story. Right. Uh, And the other thing I was actually worried about, just because there seemed to be so many people on the ground looking to help with humanitarian supplies. Is there any kind of war profiteering, black market, anything like that happening there? Well, I, I think you're always going to get a, you know, an issue of supply and demand where people will try and get a higher price uh, you know, for some items and some suppliers will. Now, in the humanitarian industry, we're pretty well developed and we know what our pricing is ahead of time. So we, we kind of call it out if, uh, if companies try to mark it up. On the, on the food space, because you're going to get some scarcity and, and some shortages, and we want to buy very specific food, right? Food that, that Ukrainians are familiar cooking, familiar eating, you know. Um, those items will, will go up simply because the supply is limited and the demand is more, right? Um, I don't think that's profiteering. I think that's just the market, but it's something that we've got to be mindful of. And what's really hurting us now is our efficiency of transport, right? Like like fuel costs are up. Wow. So that makes it more expensive to move. We don't necessarily move in big trucks, which means, you know, our cost per pound is higher because we're using smaller vans to move. So those are things that, that hurt us in these cases. But we want to always drive costs down, but we really want to reach the masses, right? And how easy is it to get the fuel you need? I would have thought that that's in short supply as well. Inside the country, it's rationed and it's limited. Um, so, I mean, I, like if you're a civilian, you can only get like 10 liter uh, uh, allocations, you know, if you're trying to get to the border and, and get out. If you're an aid convoy coming in and going out, um, you can get the fuel. But what we're trying to do is we're trying to have enough fuel at our starting point, right, to get us there and back so we're not taking the scarcity of a resource in the country. These are all things that, you know, we try to think about when we're, when we're running aid, and, and I mean, and we should, it's a professional thing to do because we don't want to take away assets and capacity and needs from people that are fleeing that fighting as we're coming in to help. What are the drugs that are most needed? Or is it the sort of the most same, most common drugs that, that people would need here? I think you've got a couple of categories there. Trauma supplies are desperately needed because there's so many people that are getting injured right? But because of trauma, because of the war, whether that's shrapnel or bullet or the bombardment or just the sheer trauma of a building coming down on them because of a, a rocket. Um, and that stuff's hard, right? So 
the medications associated the trauma for the antibiotics to stop the infections. You want them in IV format. You want all the dressings. You probably want a lot of burn dressings as well because of the nature of the fact that it's a bomb and a bombardment, which is combustible and then leads to fire. So you get the, the traumatic injury plus the burn, right? Um, but then all the basic supplies, like just think of like, you know, two, 300,000 people have flown into a, like, like streamed into a city using the train like Lviv. And of the 300,000, how many of them had an underlying condition? Like if, you know, I got high blood pressure, I take meds for it. If I was off my high blood pressure meds, you know, it, it's going to be tough. Like, so, so items like that, you know, are, are needed and the shelves are, are pretty empty because, um, you know, the supply chains are interrupted, uh, you know, for a lot of these specialty products. So, and we could just avoid people ending up in hypertensive crisis or other problems. We can keep the hospitals clear to deal with the trauma. Right? What about insulin? Insulin's a tough one. You know, like uh, that one's going to have some supply issues, especially into the areas that are, that are really, really affected and encircled. Uh, the good news about this is the neighboring countries all have great access points by road and we can get insulin there and then we can backstop into the neighboring countries. Like, like just think we can grab from Poland, we can grab from Romania. We'll look right next door is like Germany, right? Germany and Britain and France. Like we can move in. If we really had to backstop all the way over from Canada, you know, it, you know, it, we could, but we don't need to because you can backstop from those places. Where it gets a little complex is the stuff in Britain or the stuff in Germany are written in different languages than what's in Ukraine. So you just got to think twice, three times, double check what you're giving and, and, and how you're treating patients, which is, you know, stuff that medical folks do all the time. But it just adds that layer of complexity to it. And is there anything that you're accepting from here? I mean, it's it's almost uh, trivial. But for instance, last year I had home care and because of COVID, uh, unused supplies, they wouldn't take them back. I mean, so is there anybody that, who wants that? You know, that's a, that's a terrible industry in our province because it's so inefficient. They just keep sending you these supplies and the supplies are good, but nobody will take them back and they just end up in landfill and, and waste money and there's so many folks that need it. We'd love to be able to figure out how to solve that problem. Using that stuff in the middle of a war zone, no, we can't. We are doing something uh, in the coming days, you know, where we've been collecting and then going through and repacking certain supplies, like the ones I talked about, the essential meds, the trauma care, especially the wound care stuff. Uh, like dressings. It. I have unused dressings packaged. I know, but the hard part is, uh, yeah. how do I get it from you? How do I recheck yeah, it? How okay. do I repack it? How do I get to an aircraft when I can just buy it You're from right. a wholesaler in Poland, right? Like, it's just time is too much of the essence right yeah. now. Uh, to be moving stuff from here. Now, our pre-positioned stuff is going out of here. We are doing a lot of food kits out of here just because the numbers are so high in the numbers that are displaced and, and what we're trying to reach people in Ukraine. The other thing is when you work in a war, like I, gotta, I only get one opportunity to see your family. Right? You're going to come out from the shelling, get to an area. I got to get you a kit, right? So I, that box needs to be like a food hamper with all the items that you need. I can't have you try and go shopping. Right. So we're trying to kit everything and then get it across that. We're doing a little bit from here and then air freighting it across. Um, but there's 44 million people that live in this country. Right. Like there's a lot of people that live here that are affected. And the amount of aid that's coming in, it, it's good. Everyone's doing their best. But I mean, the needs are so immense. Hmm. So uh, what can people here do? Yeah, three things. So number one, give a financial donation. Pick the charity that you trust and you like and, and you see you know, the, the work they're doing. And if you evaluate it, donate it to that charity. And if, if you want to support us, it's globalmedic.ca. You'll see we're feeding folks. We're getting them shelter. We're getting those meds in. There's a ton of programs we're doing. Um, second thing with us, you, know, you can come out and volunteer and help us. Your volunteer time helps us lower the cost of aid, right? Because people packing kits, people assisting it. By helping us lower costs, we were able to help more folks. And the third thing is keep spreading the word. Tell people what's going on. Tell people about the agencies that are helping. Because maybe you can't give a financial donation, but someone in your network can. They just weren't aware. So those are the three main things to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, what is your capacity in terms of... Uh how long this is going to go on. I mean, even if, you know, everything works out, if we're really lucky and there is a real cessation of hostilities, you still like the Ukraine is, a lot of Ukraine is rubble now. 
yeah, this doesn't end tomorrow. Like if they had a ceasefire while we were talking on the phone to you, the needs are immense. People have to move back. You've got to clear the munitions. Like there's all this unexploded uh, remnants of war, like, like, you know, cluster bombs and submunitions that you'd have to clear out before you can let kids back in there. You've got to rebuild, you know, people have lost livelihoods, their economies impacted, you know, people are going to have the mental health trauma of, of what's been going on. Like, like even if it ends today, it still goes on for a while. So we're going to be there as long as it's what we can, as long as there's a need, to, you know, to be met. The problem is there's going to be a lot of needs. And let's just, let's just understand the proportionality of this. In 2014, when that war broke out, yeah, you know, with, with Crimea, uh, Luhansk, and Donetsk, there was a total of 1.7 million people that were displaced because of that fighting, right? Mm-hmm. There's already 3 million refugees, which means people that were displaced and crossed the border. There's at least 2 million more displaced that are in the country, and that number we don't truly know because it's really hard to keep count. So, like, this dwarfs 2014. And... Just from what you see on the ground, uh, yesterday uh, we did an item with a couple of immigration lawyers and and a uh, local Ukrainian-Canadian trying to bring family members over. Is it realistic that uh, despite the lovely announcements by the government, is it realistic that that's some Ukrainians will actually be able to get here? So... Let me start by apologizing for my comment. Unfortunately, I find our government incredibly incompetent in this in this space. We we've watched the the bondoozle of uh, the Afghanistan crisis, and, you know, and and the government's more interested in like photo ops and and fluffy comments than it is in actually doing the work. So, I know that's a harsh statement, but it's incredibly accurate. And these people have to get their act together because folks are suffering. I do think that Ukrainians will end up here. I think we're going to take a lot of them. Um, and I, and I think that they have a big community here. You know, there's almost a million Ukrainian Canadians that are here that are going to support them and help them integrate. More. 1.4 million. <laughs> 1.4. Okay. You've got better numbers than I do. So, so the community will be welcome. They will come uh, and they'll need some some help. It's just frustrating to watch the bureaucracy turn so slowly in order to, to get that assistance. And, and we don't have to look too far back on, on Afghanistan where, you know, we watched the fall of Kabul and we watched people that, that helped our, you know, troops on the ground and our folks there. And they, you know, they got left behind. So I do think people will come. We've got to speed this up. Uh, some of the harder parts of this is the people that will come are going to be women and children. Um, and they're going to need a lot of support. Now, it's great. There's a big community here to welcome them and, and, and support them, but there's going to be a lot of things that we need to do. Uh, and if you, if you think about it, just the one thing where they're talking about giving folks temporary access and temporary visas and showing up, it means they don't get OHIP for 90 days. Well, I think we can all think that people coming out of that war zone is going to need access to primary health care in the first 90 days. So that'll be a hump that we're going to have to, an obstacle that we'll have to overcome. And there's ways to do that. But uh, yeah, they need to put the pedal to the metal and get going on this. Okay. Uh, Rahul, and it can't be a photo op. You know what I mean? Like, like, yes. like waiting to fill a plane and come over and put a blanket around somebody and for your reelection is just not what this can be. Okay. We have very little time left, Rahul. What would you like to leave us with in... Uh, 15 or 20 seconds. Help folks in Ukraine. You can do that by supporting us with a contribution at globalmedic.ca and spreading the word and then volunteering. But let's help these folks that are in need. Rahul Singh, fascinating conversation. And thank you for all the great work you're doing. Really appreciate it. Hey, take care. You too. Bye-bye. We are taking another break. And when we come back, we will check in with someone else who is on the ground, friend of the station, Reverend Majid El-Shafi from One Free World International. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. There are also numerous other organizations on the ground in the war zone and border countries providing humanitarian aid. Earlier this week, we checked in with Reverend Majid El-Shafi, a human rights advocate and founder of One Free World International. At the time, he was in Ukraine. I talked to him again as he moved to Warsaw, Poland. In terms of the work you're doing, are you able to get supplies? What's involved with that? So the supplies we were able to get uh, from Poland, and there's plenty of it, 
so we were able to basically, once we landed in Poland, we were able to buy all the supplies, the main necessities of life, such as diapers, milk, uh, powder, powder milk, sorry, uh, bread, uh, cans of food, many cans of food, uh, blankets, pillows, uh, mattresses, air mattresses, and of course, toys for the kids. So there's there's no problem getting your hands on that stuff? None whatsoever. So we took care of three different shelters, or we visited three different shelters. So one shelter in Warsaw, one shelter on the border, and two in Ukraine. So four in total. Tell me about the shelter in Warsaw. There are many shelters in Warsaw. So basically the shelter in Warsaw is, is more schools, and sports centers that turned to be a center of basically. So we went to a Catholic church that they opened the church to be a shelter. We went to sports center. We went to even uh, some people's homes that they turned them to a shelter. So in Warsaw, it's not like, you know, a refugee camp as you see in Iraq and in Syria and, you know, uh, Afghanistan. It's more buildings that was used for something else and it was turned to a shelter. How many people are sharing the space and is there enough food for them and bedding and all of that? Depends. Uh, so we, we witness a shelter that only can take 16 up to 500 and 700. So it depends on the space and depends on the venue itself. Mm-hmm. Now, if there is enough food, there is enough food for now. Uh, because the Polish people and the international community really, the NGOs, not government, uh, but the NGOs and the international community and even the neighbors and the people in the streets really something. A couple of weeks ago, the Canadian government said it would la- allow an unlimited number of Ukrainian refugees to come in, but they haven't released the rules and they haven't eased the visa requirements or biometric requirements yet. Have you heard any talk about that? We adopted many families from Ukraine that we can we try to bring them here to Canada. And that's the problem with the Canadian government. They promise a lot, but they don't follow up with the details right away. So let me tell you an incident happened here. A family, Ukrainian family, went to the Canadian embassy in, in Poland, in Warsaw. And in order to get their application uh, done and to apply, and the the, and the embassy told them, well, it's a hundred dollar per person. Now these people running with their clothes on their back, you know, they don't have a hundred dollar to to give you to apply for the application. And if they do, they would like to spend it on food or rent. So so definitely, the Canadian government has to do more because there is a lot of unanswered questions and a lot of unknowns. And people don't know where to go. I'm surprised by that because the one thing they said they did do was fa- waive the fees. What they did not waive was the need for biometrics, the need for documents. I also hear that, and I'm also very really surprised. But that happened to our family just two days ago. So, is it miscommunication? Is it uh, miscommunication between Ottawa and the entity here? Is it a fault of bureaucrats that uh, just was following the rules without being updated? Only get those. What are you hearing from people in terms of, uh, you know, I, I'm assuming it's mostly women and children because men between 18 and 60 are not allowed to leave? I believe that women and children missing the loved ones, of course. And the most painful thing that they don't know if they will see them again or not. So uh, from 18 to 60, they are not allowed to leave. But also at the same time, to leave. Uh, a single mothers and children to, to leave the country alone, it's also a major concern for us because uh, now we can see many evidence of human trafficking and many people trying to use the war for their benefit. So always there is fear, always there is worries how the children will survive, how the single mom will survive in these conditions, especially if they don't have anything, they don't have any support. Uh, it's a major concern uh, as, a, as a human rights organization. There has been a warning about human trafficking. Uh, what are you seeing or worried about? Even in the hotel where we are right now, you can see many Ukrainian uh, uh, mothers and children coming in and out. And you can see that uh, some uh, men will go to talk to them and, and, and try to lower them in a job or something. Uh, uh, that's the fear. We don't know, of course, if it's genuine or not. 
even when they come in the border and many families receive them and take them to their home, you don't know who's this family. You don't know who's taking them to their home. And, and, and there is no, uh, uh, let's say, a history or, or uh, information who is this people and where they are going. And of course, many of these offers will be genuine. Of course, people would have a good heart to help. But there is also the odd uh, people that will take advantage of them. How many other aid groups are you encountering? I mean, there seem to be a lot of people on the ground, right? There is a lot of people on the ground. We encountered at least maybe around 15, 16 groups. But it's not really the groups and it's not their names. It's really the people. Like, I, I was really surprised to witness regular people uh, turning to be a heroes between day and night. You know, our concept of a hero, a hero that wearing a costume and flying in the air. You know, these people is the bus drivers uh, that are taking them for free, is the people that are opening their home. Uh, I met a mayor of a city on the border between Poland and Ukraine. He, he immediately turned one of the big land that they had to a shelter and immediately called the fire department. They built a, a, a tent, all of this in a matter of few days. So it's not really just the NGOs, it's even the, the community itself. And what do you see as your next priority? My next priority will be going back again to Ukraine. And I think the military aid. So one of the stops, I stopped at a a military hospital. And I visited the wounded soldiers. And I spoke openly and freely to to the doctors. And I was able to visit many of the wounded soldiers. And the medical supplies is, 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 is a critic to save their lives the civilians and the military personnel, uh, uh, the, the need for medical equipment, for medication, is a huge, great need right now. So that would be one of my priorities. The, another priority is the children. So we went to the orphanage with the special needs children that were left behind because of the war. And there is around 600 of them in one shelter. And I'm telling you, uh, it just will break your heart, the condition of how they live. So obviously, the children and the medical supplies would be our next priority to return back. Majid El Shafi, thank you so much, and uh, stay safe and take care. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye bye. Yeah. Wow. And we will be checking in with Majid periodically. That's all the time we have for today. Free for All Friday is coming up tomorrow. That's the day we talk about what you want to talk about. So if you couldn't get through or have more to say about what you've been hearing, do give us a call. That's it for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.